Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thanks for being with us. In this episode, Vladimir Putin decides Russia has annexed four regions of the Ukraine. Trouble is, Russian forces have had to retreat from a major city in one of those very same regions. The conservative government in the UK is under severe pressure and some in their own ruling party thinks it's a self-inflicted wound. Back in the day, then-Congressman Ron DeSantis voted against federal help for New York City in the wake of Hurricane Sandy. Now, as governor of the state of Florida, guess who he's asking for help in the wake of Hurricane Ian? That judge in the Mar-a-Lago probe slaps down the special master she appointed. And then there's Ginny Thomas. What, again? Yup. Off we go. What in the world is to make of Vladimir Putin's Russia? People thought the war in Ukraine would be a done deal, a walk in the park. Not hardly. In Russia's latest humiliation, their troops appear surrounded by Ukrainian forces just outside the city of Liman. This is, in fact, the worst possible optics for Putin and his military machine. It calls into question the widespread belief that the Russian military is some unstoppable machine. Yet here's a question the West has yet to answer. If the Ukrainians need drones to take back territory they've lost, will the West supply them? And beyond that, will this setback cause hardline Putin allies to call for an escalation of the war? An escalation, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean the use of nuclear weapons. That's theoretically why he's partially mobilized 300,000 reservists, many of whom have no interest in becoming cannon fodder. Finger pointing in a war is never, ever a sign of success. Putin's allies are now blaming the military in charge of holding Liman for the failure to do so. It also raises the question of whether other areas of the newly annexed territories could also fall, no matter what the referenda say about the public's desire to become a part of Russia. Another question is whether these setbacks will cause the Russians to negotiate a reasonable settlement to end the war. While the recent prisoner swap might indicate there's room for talks, Russian hardliners in their security service objected even to the swaps and were overruled, apparently, by Vladimir Putin. Which leads to the question, are there people in his inner circle who are willing to go further to win this war than he is? Meanwhile, the effect of the war on the economies of the West is severe. Energy prices across Europe are going up, as are inflation rates. For some politicians, particularly in the UK where I am, the war has become a whipping boy for economic decisions that appear to be self-inflicted wounds. In Great Britain, the war and COVID are regularly trotted out to explain the country's various economic problems. We'll get to that in a minute. However, to finalize this thing about Russia and the Ukraine, just know that they are currently in a cycle of no-win stasis, with right now no end in sight. All I can say is it's a good thing I waited a little to do a story on my adopted home, the United Kingdom. Developments here are changing fast, and I want to be as up-to-date as possible. A little over a week ago, 
the Chancellor of the Exchequer, similar to the Treasury Secretary in the U.S., a guy named Kwasi Kwarteng, announced a mini-budget that shook the world's financial markets, not just the U.K.'s financial markets, the world's financial markets. You need to pay attention to this because in some cases, the political spin is, oh, it's not really that uh, deep and it's not that deep an effect, that is, on the world. It was a deep effect on the world. Now, what was contained in this mini-budget that has everybody so upset and exercised? Among other things, the plan would have scrapped the 45% tax rate on incomes of more than $150,000. It would have removed the limits on bankers' bonuses, currently at twice their annual salaries. It also refused to guarantee that poor people's benefits would rise at anywhere close to the rate of inflation. Several things have happened at once after Quartang's announcement. The pound dropped to its lower, lowest level against the U.S. dollar, probably in many a moon. Mortgage companies started pulling their products, and British pensions had to be propped up by the Bank of England. And then Quartang and his boss, Prime Minister Liz Truss, doubled down, saying they wouldn't change a thing. Of course, that was then, and this is now. As of this week, Quartang U-turned on the 45% thing. He also had to admit it was a bad look to be seen at a champagne reception for Conservative Party donors not long after he announced this train wreck. I don't know how people, and it's not obviously just in the UK, but I don't know how people can think that no one's going to see faulty optics in the notion of, on the one hand, making an announcement that says bankers' bonuses no longer have to be capped at twice their annual salaries, and then having the person that made that announcement go to a champagne reception for some of the same bankers. And rest assured and, and understand that these bankers, okay, these are not socialists. These are not communists. Bankers are at what they do for one thing and one thing only, to make money. So Quartang deciding to sip champagne with them is the height and epitome of tone deafness. And that is even insulting to the deaf. What's even more interesting, at least to me, is how quickly this government throws itself under the bus. Quartang and probably Trust decided to scrap the 45% plan right around 24 hours after Trust defended it on television. And guess who made the re media rounds Monday morning to announce the change? That's right, Quartang. Speculation is already at a fever pitch as to how much longer he'll last in government. Certainly last in his current job in government. While some may have been calmed by his speech to the Conservative Party conference, the final decision will be left to the markets. And again, these are not socialists. Some of these people will even profit by the chaos that this mini-budget created. Yet the scariest thing may be yet to come. I thought someone was kidding when they mentioned the creation 
of investment zones. Now, what are investment zones? Investment zones are, at least as far as the UK is concerned, areas where normal rules, planning processes, etc., are scrapped. And they're scrapped at the behest of corporations who would locate in these investment zones. Now, I thought this was a crock. I never thought in a million years anybody would take all this seriously. But yet, this kind of corporatization is exactly, apparently, what the conservatives in Britain want. Quartine even mentioned them. And you can see how this could balkanize a society. Suddenly, corporations locate in investment zones and say to the public, well, look, if you want to work, you have to come over to this zone. And you have to sit still for the corporatization of large swaths of British land. It's almost too whack to contemplate. But apparently, that is what may be, maybe, the end game here. I thought it was a dystopian nightmare. Yet, this is apparently part of, quote, moving Britain forward. Over here in the UK, there's a dessert called an eaten mess. Looks like the conservatives have managed to create an eaten mess of their own. Up next, Ron DeSantis voted against federal aid in the wake of Hurricane Sandy a decade ago. He was in Congress then. Now that he's governor of Florida, guess who he's asking for help after a hurricane devastates his state? This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Glad you're with us. Back in 2013, Ron DeSantis was a freshman congressman from a Florida district. When it came to vote on federal aid for New York City in the wake of Hurricane Sandy, Ron DeSantis said no. He argued there were too many non-emergency items contained in that bill. Now fast forward almost 10 years. DeSantis's home state, Florida, has been ravaged by Hurricane Ian. Guess what? The same Ron DeSantis who said no to New York as a congressman is having to go to the man he calls Brandon, Joe Biden, and ask him for emergency help. Now, it may be too much to ask a politician, any politician, to be consistent. Many of them can weasel out of just about anything. Yet even some of DeSantis's Republican colleagues are calling him out on this one. After all, this is a rock star member of the GOP who maybe plans to run for president. He shouldn't have to be called out for hypocrisy, should he? When the media asked him about his past history in terms of disaster aid, his spokesperson gave a typical dodgy political response. He said, quoting here, DeSantis is completely focused on hurricane response. We have no time for politics or pettiness. Gee, that's a different tune than the one he was singing only back in February. Back then, he said Joe Biden stiffed the storm victims of Florida for political reasons. His evidence? Evidence? 
Who needs evidence? On another front, the tennis match between Special Master Raymond Deary and Judge Eileen Cannon has been ratcheted up a bit. For those of you who don't know, this has to do with the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, Trump's home, away from home, or maybe in home. And there's been a back and forth between Trump's lawyers and the Justice Department. Now, Judge Cannon, a Trump appointee, has slapped down several requests of the Trump defense team. Actually, the truth of the matter is she has acceded to several requests of the Trump defense team and has in fact slowed the investigation down yet again. If one distills Judge Cannon's rulings thus far, even an objective observer would have to conclude they favor Trump. Trouble is, Cannon appointed the special master, Judge Raymond Deary. I guess she thought he would play it her way. The problem is that while she can slow down both Deary and the Justice Department, she can't stop them. Much of the jousting is against the backdrop of an appeals court ruling that struck down parts of Judge Cannon's first ruling. Are you following that? Because I admit, it's difficult for me. One of the finer points in Judge Cannon's ruling lets Trump's lawyers off the hook in having to back his claims that the FBI planted documents in his Mar-a-Lago home. Had they made that claim in court without evidence, as I've said before, there could have been professional consequences. Now, things are just a little bit different. So the net effect of Judge Cannon's pushing back on her own hand-picked special master is that it gives the Trump team time. Time to figure out a plausible reason why the former president of the United States brought reams of classified material with him as he left the White House. Could the real reason be that he thought, even as he left office, that he would somehow be returned? That stop the steal would actually work? I'm just asking. And finally, the Ginny Thomas saga continues with the wife of the Supreme Court Justice testifying before a closed-door session of the January 6th committee. Wonder what she said? This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Ginny Thomas is back in the news. With all that's going on, you might have missed the fact that she testified before the January 6th committee. I must admit, I've been fascinated by Ginny Thomas since the time she was filmed bringing Kentucky Fried Chicken home for her husband's dinner. That was a long, long time ago. But the image always stuck with my mind for some reason. Don't ask me how or why. Fast forward 30 years or so, and she testified in a closed-door session of the January 6th committee. She testified she never discussed her efforts to overturn the 2020 election with her husband, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. In addition, she repeated her claim that the election was in fact stolen from Donald Trump. This, of course, is her right under the First Amendment, and I cannot emphasize this enough. As a former journalist, however you want to describe me, 
I believe in the First Amendment. I believe people have rights uh, within certain limitations to advocate for whatever they want, no matter how wrong-headed. And my brother Clayton, rest his soul, always told me that the way to counter bad speech is with better speech, not suppressing what you consider to be the bad speech. Now, no one, least of all me, would deprive Jenny Thomas of the right to speak her mind. And certainly not because of who she's married to. Both Thomases should have known, however, that her post-election lobbying of legislators and Trump administration officials to overturn the 2020 election would look unseemly at best. She can say without fear of contradiction that she and her husband never discussed business pending before the court. Unless you spent time in the Thomas bedroom, you'd have no way of knowing otherwise. And maybe Justice Thomas never knew of his wife's lobby. Now, I, I got to take that one with a grain of salt. Yet for me, the most important thing is that she told the committee she still thought the results of the election were fraudulent. This fraud narrative actually well predates the 2020 election. It's been rumbling around and rumbling underground since the turn of the 21st century. Remember Bush v. Gore? Throughout it all, and throughout all the elections since, there are those who have alleged voter fraud. Few, if any, of these allegations have been found to have substance. So, let me say that again. With all of the alleged cases of voter fraud, very few of them, very few, minuscule uh, percentage of them have been found to have substance. And you'd be surprised where some of those cases have led. However, there is this perception, nurtured by the Republican right, I must say, that voter fraud is rampant. You remember the thing about busing Mexicans across the border in order to vote? All these kinds of whack conspiracy theories. So, obviously, they breathed life into this where actually there was none. Now, why Ginny Thomas bought into the 2020 fraud claims has to do with ideology, not fact. You see, because allegations of voter fraud resonate within the Republican body politic. And that's where it takes root. And that's where politicians can take action based on non-existent fraud claims. There have been dozens of court cases across America that have examined allegations of voter fraud. Few, if any, have found substance to any of them. That the wife of a Supreme Court justice is a true believer and a lobbyist at the same time ought to raise a few eyebrows. At least, they've raised mine. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well. <laughs>